You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, we'll bring you highlights from a recent reporter roundtable discussion about how local governments have reduced transparency during the pandemic. I get in front of him and I start asking him questions and his his assistant comes over and says, you can't ask him questions. And I said, you're kidding me. I'm going to ask him questions. I've had a request for an interview in for three weeks and we're doing this now. And so he, he stood there for about 10 or 15 minutes, <laughs> managed not to really answer any of my questions directly. But then he, they did follow up a couple of weeks later with a, an interview. And I've, I've had some access since then, but, you know, it's incredibly limited. I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Civic. Civic is underwritten in part by the San Francisco Foundation, which has been acting as a catalyst for change to build strong communities, foster civic leadership, and promote philanthropy in the San Francisco Bay Area since 1948. More at sff.org. So we're talking today about open government during the coronavirus pandemic, because back in late March, actually, the Society of Professional Journalists of Northern California and the First Amendment Coalition and a couple other freedom of information groups were actually already calling on state agencies to uh, respect the um, California Public uh, Records Act. And they were calling out state agencies for saying that they'd stop responding or respond more slowly to records requests until the crisis passes. Well, we're now 10 months into the crisis and it doesn't seem to be going away. And locally, Mayor Lyndon Breed early in 2020 had suspended certain elements of the Sunshine Ordinance and open records law in San Francisco. And journalists have found it fairly difficult to get answers to questions from various city departments during frequent virtual press conferences. I've been hearing a lot from local reporters about their experiences running into these roadblocks, and I've run into a couple of them myself. So I wanted to get some journalists together to paint a bigger picture of how this reduced access to information during a health emergency is affecting our work, and more importantly for readers and listeners, how it affects the news that reaches the public. So tonight we'll be hearing from a couple of journalists. Lydia Chavez is the executive editor at Mission Local, which has been tirelessly covering the pandemic and its disproportionate impacts on the city's Latinx residents. Lydia, welcome. Thank you. Trisha Thadani is a city hall reporter with the San Francisco Chronicle, who's been covering nursing facilities, homelessness, mental health, drug overdose deaths, and drug policy, plus other topics as well. Trisha, thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. And Scott Morris is an investigative journalist who for the last year has been working with the Bay City News Foundation and ProPublica. You can hear about one of his investigations on a recent episode of Civic and read more of his work um, there. Scott, hey, again, thanks for coming back. Hey, nice to be here. And we also have Nula Bashari, an, an independent reporter who writes for the San Francisco Public Press in these times. And she also has a regular public health column in the San Francisco Examiner. Nula, welcome. Thank you. So I want to encourage all of our panelists to jump in whenever you have something to add so that we can have a conversation about this. And I also want to hear from everybody else who's attending because this event is open to the public. I want to start with something that's been, I think, difficult for a lot of San Francisco reporters and reporters from outlets based outside of the city who still cover it. And that's the press conference format that local officials have been using to answer questions. And what happens here is that reporters are asked to join the web conference and their video and audio is turned off, which given what I just said about how we're managing participation in this event because of Zoom bombing, I think I can empathize <laughs> with that you know, a little bit, but um, reporters then have to submit their questions in a specific format and it usually takes 
And they're usually supposed to do that before the last official finishes their remarks in order to actually get them answered. So I'm hoping that all of you can weigh in a little bit on how this has affected your ability to get your questions answered. And Lydia, I'm thinking maybe we could start with you. Um, yeah, I, I, it's a terrible setup. <laughs> I mean, uh, they, they just decide it's, it's some of these press conferences not, not to answer questions. And, you know, the first, I would say six or seven of these Zooms in which I'm, you know, Colfax is taking questions. He never answers a question. I mean, he takes a question, but he totally dodges it. So there's no, and there's no, we're not there. So there's no follow-up and people just, you're, you're, you're constrained, you can't follow up. So I think it's both the nature of the person taking the questions and not so much the questions and then the format, it just really puts journalists at an incredible disadvantage. Yeah, I mean, I totally echo what, what Lydia said in that it's just, I mean, the, the best part of press conferences is that you were able to sort of yell questions and you were able to get politicians to answer them in like an off the cuff way if they weren't expecting it, right? And you can get more of an authentic response where, you know, when you, one thing I notice is when you put it in the chat, maybe they have more time to like prepare, they have their spokespeople behind there that they can, you know, feed answers into and everything, which isn't necessarily a bad thing, but it's just a different way of, of getting answers. Um, another thing, yeah, like there was times where my questions when I submitted them well before the deadline when they just wouldn't get answered. There was one time I asked um, a question of one official and I actually ended up getting a call from their spokesperson right after I'd submitted it being like, oh, they're not gonna answer it in in this press conference. Like, <laughs> Let me get you a statement later. And I'm like, that's not how this is supposed to work. But so yeah, it puts us at a serious disadvantage of just getting you know answers in a public form um, from our officials. Yeah, I think one of the issues around this that I've heard from a lot of reporters is, you know, you, you want to go to these press conferences to try and get your questions in front of the public officials who are best qualified to answer them. And it's difficult to get people to talk with you outside of those press conferences, which, you know, everybody's busy. Um, but what have all of your experiences been trying to, um, you know, get interviews with relevant city, county, or state um, officials, or getting even into facilities, for example, at the city, county, or state level um, that are relevant during, during this crisis. Um, Trisha, maybe we'll start with you. Yeah. Um, so yeah, in terms of getting interviews, it's just harder. I mean, you have, you constantly hear, oh, they're, <clears throat> you know, to like to get an interview with Colfax, I feel like is, is pretty impossible. And I mean, we're talking here for anybody who's not well versed in this with, uh, we're talking about Grant Colfax, who's the director of the public health department. Right. E easily probably one of the busiest people in, in the city and county right now, but still like he should have to answer to reporters. And I was trying to get interviews with him a lot in the beginning of the pandemic, and it just wasn't possible. Um, and in terms of getting into facilities, I mean, we were trying to get into Laguna Honda in the beginning um, to see when they had an outbreak uh, there to see how things were going. Um, we've also tried getting into like the hospitals to see the ICU units. Um, so we could show these images to the public and, you know, describe what it was like in there. But we constantly got um, and have are still today getting stonewalled of getting into places because people are saying, you know, because of COVID restrictions, we can't, you can't come in. So it's just, it's just harder to do our jobs in so many ways. 
Yeah, uh, Lydia, what's your experience been? I, yeah, I, know, uh, I mean, to sort of corner people. Totally agree. I I ran into Colfax. I think this was in the summer sometime in um, at the hub at the Latino Task Force, and I had been asking, you know, every week I would need an interview. I needed an interview week, and so I, you know, grab him. I didn't grab him, but I <laughs> I get in front of him and I start asking him questions, and his his assistant comes over and says, you can't ask him questions. And I said, you're kidding me. I'm going to ask him questions. I've had a request for an interview and for three weeks and we're doing this now. And so he, he stood there for about 10 or 15 minutes, <laughs> managed not to really answer any of my questions <laughs> directly, but then he, they did follow up a couple of weeks later with a, an interview. And I've, I've had some access since then, but you know, it's incredibly limited. Um, Nilan, I think this is maybe the time for you to jump in with your experiences trying to get interviews with people from various city departments. Yeah, sure. So I think in regards to phone calls, I mean, that's always a really good way to um, be able to ask questions to people directly. I have been struggling quite a bit since the pandemic started, since nobody is working in their offices right now. And so a lot of the phone numbers that I have for people are their office lines. And I don't know how often those are getting checked, often the voicemails are full, and it's incredibly difficult to get through to people via email, which I can talk about in a minute. Um, and so at this point, I'm really depending on my colleagues to help me track down people's cell phone numbers um, and even and then, you know, sometimes people are not getting back to you. Um, but the line of communication, a lot of the existing contacts that I have for people are now no longer valid. Yeah. So what happens when you try and email somebody to get an interview with them? <laughs> Well, um, so for those who are unaware, um, in March, the city decided to start triaging media requests through the uh, COVID command center, which is run by the Department of Emergency Management. And so right now, if you want to get a quote from the Department of Public Health and often even um, the Department of Homelessness, you have to email DEM directly. And I have just had a hell of a time trying to get information out of them. Um, the answers I get often do not come from the departments that I'm trying to contact. Requests are very, very slow to actually land in my inbox. Sometimes it takes days and days and they don't arrive until well past my deadline. And the questions I ask are very rarely answered. So I can give you an example or two if you like. Yeah, go ahead. Okay, sure. So um, in September, I covered an illegal private sweep of a homeless encampment outside a large event space in Soma. As the sweep was not conducted by the city or sanctioned by it, I thought it was vital to include the city's perspective on the issue. So I reached out to the Department of Homelessness via DEM for comment, and I asked three very clear questions with bullet points and spaces between them. Um, three days later, far past my deadline, I received a response that answered one question credited only to a DEM staffer named Brian. They don't use last names, which as a reporter is incredibly difficult to use. I cannot cite someone named Brian in my article, not knowing what actually where the information came from. And that is something that I am running into over and over and over again. Um, similarly, in October, I reached out to the Department of Emergency Management to try to get more clarity on the budget for the shelter in place hotels. Um, I again sent them three very specific questions and they responded with a very long statement that answered none of them. So I reached out to the controller's office. I sent them two emails, left two voicemails, uh, never heard back. Um, and instead of responding to me, the controller's office forwarded my request to the Department of Homelessness who then emailed me the exact same statement that I had received from DEM the week prior. And so it's this kind of cyclical situation where I'm not actually able to have a direct line of communication with the departments that I am trying to access information from. Yeah. 
I yeah, want the one wish. useful thing that's happened though is that when you finally do get someone and they try and get in touch with you, they're using their cell phones. So then you start collecting all the <laughs> damn central commands people's cell phones and you can try different different cell phones. That's been more effective. And and I think in like in the last couple of months, it seems like it's improved somewhat. Somewhat. I haven't well, tried that's good. That's heartening to hear. I mean, I everybody under the sun has my cell phone number. So <laughs> I'm always glad to like I think that's probably the best way to reach people in, in this era. Um I wanna veer away a little bit from San Francisco for a second and bring in Scott, because Scott, you are a very prolific filer of public records requests. Um, and, and I want to give you a chance to talk about your experiences with departments outside of the city. You've done tons of work investigating in particular utilities and California's utilities regulator over the past year. You've also worked on police misconduct stories. And I personally love following your updates on, on Twitter because it really gives a kind of those of us who don't do this all day insight into how bizarre the responses to records requests can sometimes be. Like you recently posted about how the Fremont Police Department, I think, told you that they had to hand redact all of their personnel records on paper. Um, I, we've talked a lot today about getting coronavirus specific information, but you've been reporting on other public offices. Have, have the, have the responsiveness and the timeliness of the offices that you deal with changed during the pandemic too? Yes and no. Uh, a lot of people are using the pandemic as kind of an excuse to delay or obstruct public records requests. And that's something you run into um, again and again is that you get back and they say, well, because of COVID-19 and we're all working from home and our staffing is low and, uh, you know, there's, there's, so in a couple cases, I've even had them say, we would like you to put off your public records request until the pandemic is over. And, you know, transparency in government doesn't just get to end when, uh, they just be, you know, when there's this kind of crisis, it's even more important that there's transparency. And, and also when is the crisis going to be over? And that's unclear. And it, it, it's, you know, when, when, how long do you expect me to put this off for, for a week, for a month or for, you know, a year, for another 18 months, who knows? Um, and so, you know, this is, this isn't like a good answer for that question. And, and frankly, I think that it, it's an excuse a lot of the times. It's just, uh, there's a, there's a lot of, like you said, bizarre responses that you get for public records requests and, and reasons that they, they have for delaying this. But at the end of the day, these are things that, that they can and should be accomplished. California never changed the statutory deadlines for public records requests. They never said that you get a pass because of a pandemic. There's nothing, there's nothing in the orders from Gavin Newsom that's cited repeatedly that says that they can start, start withholding records. They don't have to turn these things over. There are times that I have found that it makes sense that say, um, if I'm asking for something that's buried in a filing cabinet in some state agency and they, they haven't digitized it, it's, it's years old, it's something that they, they, somebody filled out or something like that, and, and it's difficult to access. Um, that has come up here and there and that makes sense. But if I'm asking for a trove of emails and you keep pushing it off for months because you say it's the pandemic, that doesn't really make sense to me. You can still access emails from home. You can, you know, all of this stuff is is digital. If you're working from home, you should be able to get a hold of this stuff. And and agencies just use this as an excuse. So what ultimately happened with the Fremont Police Department? Did they in fact print out reams and reams of paper and hand redacted and like mail it to you? 
Yes, that is exactly what happened. And, and that was an excuse they were making since uh, SB 1421, the police transparency law passed um, and took effect last year. Uh, the Fremont Police Department shortly after that, not only did they want to charge for the charge for the for all the paper that they were using and printing this out but they at the time they said that they had to charge for redacting so all the staff time it took to hand redact all those documents you had to pay money to pay for those people to do that now this year the california supreme court said they can't do that um, agencies are no longer allowed to charge for redaction time that that is something that they never should have been doing and finally there was a ruling against it um, so there's those thousands and thousands of dollars for that are out, but they still said, well, we, we have these redacted documents. They're only in hard copy format. So if you want them, we're going to have to print them out on, you know, I think it was something like 1500 sheets of paper. And, and then they charged me to mail it to me, although they wanted me to come down and pick it up at the department, or they said that they could charge me extra to mail it to me. Uh, I opted for the mail. And that's another thing is that why in the digital age, are you having me go down to your office in the middle of a pandemic and instead of just scanning this stuff and sending it to me via email? And the reason at the end of the day is I, I don't think there's any other reason except that Fremont doesn't want people to read their police personnel records. You're listening to highlights from a roundtable of Bay Area journalists about reduced government transparency during the coronavirus pandemic. I wanted to give all of the journalists here a chance to weigh in on just why this matters so much. Um, because we're for us as journalists, I think it's fairly obvious we want access to information. I know that for for me, obviously, a lot of the time my motivation is I want to give you know a city department who I'm writing about or somebody who has a policy that I'm writing about um, a chance to weigh in so that they they have their say as well, um, and that sort of is not available if I'm not able to talk to those people. Um, so I wanted to see if any of you have further thoughts about that. Yeah, Nula. Uh, I think, you know, circling back a little bit to what Scott mentioned, um, transparency is important in building trust. And so when you look at city departments, especially something like the Department of Homelessness, which has an enormous multi-million dollar budget, and we don't understand the breakdown of where that budget is going, people start to lose trust in that department. Um, I've seen, you know, huge rise in neighborhood organized groups um, trying to address issues of homelessness on themselves and by themselves. And I think part of that is born out of a lack of understanding um, over what the city is doing to, to manage the problems. Um, and we're seeing the same thing, you know, this week Heaney called for a hearing on the rollout of uh, COVID vaccines. And the fact that we don't actually have a number of how many people in the city have been vaccinated or that number has not been made available to us starts to stir up distrust, right? And so people are really, you know, starting to, to wonder, is the city doing a good job? Um, who's getting it prioritized? Who's not? And a lot of that response is because the city is not being clear with what its practices are. And so, you know, in order to hold city, the city accountable, we have to understand what they're doing. Um, and in order to trust the city, we have to understand what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, absolutely. It's, it's, uh, it's really outrageous, the lack of information over this time, you know, in testing, for instance, you know, the city can say at all the press conferences, you know, we're testing, we're expanding testing, and it, impacted communities, but unless as journalists, we can get that information of where and who they are testing, which they have the data files for all of this, um, how do we know? 
I mean, how does anyone know what they're doing? And then when you actually start to get data and piece it together and discover that they're not testing where they should be testing and you publish it, I mean, that's really important information and it makes the government better. I mean, it makes the government do a better job. So the lack of transparency in this pandemic, I think has been a huge problem and the lack of data has been a huge problem. And now with the vaccinations, the same thing. I mean, they, they roll out a press conference a couple of weeks ago saying, you know, we're going to talk about the vaccinations. There are about three sentences and no real plan. So you do like, where is the plan? What are you going to do? How many have been, I mean, these are incredibly legitimate questions, which it's odd to me in a way that they haven't thought about this and how this, you know, their presentation which is haphazard to say the best, makes them look. It is, you know, as, as you say, Nola, it doesn't give you great confidence. Yeah, and, and going off of those um, two things, I feel like it's always a huge red flag when you have like people on the ground, whether they're family members or homeless people in hotels or people trying to get vaccines, when they're reaching out to you asking how they can. <laughs> um, we really experienced this in the beginning with uh, Laguna Honda, which for those who, who, who might not know, it's the city's largest nursing home facility, maybe one of the largest in the country also, but we were hearing that there was, there was cases there. Um, and, you know, the only reason we were like getting information about testing and, and PPE shortages was because we had sources that were telling us about it, um, you know, who were from the inside and to get information from officials was we'd like pry the information out of them. Um, you know, it was really terrible during the press conferences. I mean, Colfax wasn't even addressing it in the beginning and I had to hope that he would answer my question um, when I put it into the chat. Um, but, you know, during that, there were so many family members who had, you know, had their, you know, older mom or dad in that facility and didn't know what the hell was going on. And they were turning to us for answers. Um, it was a similar thing with the homeless hotel program when the city, like, don't, they said that they were winding it down, but really didn't have a plan to wind it down or a timeline or where people were going. I had homeless people emailing me who could access email asking what is what is happening with this. So it's it's not just it's you know, it, it really shows you like the impact that um, and how important journalism is, because we're the ones who are disseminating the information to the public when the government is falling short. Got any thoughts from you on that? Um, yeah, I mean, I think everybody nailed it. And I, I mean, fundamentally, the last week we've been dealing with like the question of democracy and a challenge of democracy. And I, I mean, knowing what your government is up to and getting information and transparency from your government is a simple matter of democracy because you can't engage in democracy unless you know what your government is doing. Yeah, yeah it's, it's interesting. You know, it's a government that didn't want to ever acknowledge making mistakes maybe. And, you know, the city is in the midst of a pandemic, you know, clearly government officials in San Francisco are trying to do what they can do. And I, I think they just always want it to appear completely in control and never having made a mistake or a false move. And that's just not the case. And I think, in fact, it would have given people much more confidence to say, well, you know, we did kind of screw up there, but we're trying to do this to remedy that. Like, this is a pandemic. You know, no one has ever gone through this alive has gone through this before. And I, I think they managed it in odd ways to me, but. 
What do you all make of the argument about transparency versus privacy? I think that I hear that a lot when it comes to a question of data and being able to get access to data sets is often the answer is, well, we can't give you this because of privacy rules or because of privacy concerns. And I think most of the time reporters are not asking for people's names who are involved in programs. We're not asking for addresses specifically. At most, we might want zip codes. Um, but that's sort of a, a response that I hear a lot. Are you also getting that? And, and what do you say? Nula, I saw you nodding, so I'm gonna ask you to answer that one first. Um, I mean, I think that with this pandemic, um, we've all had to learn a lot about HIPAA um, and the rights of, of patients to preserve their anonymity. Um, I don't think that that should apply to things like city budgets. Um, I personally have not received that um, about city budgets. I think as, as uh, residents of the city who are very directly impacted by the city's decisions, uh, we do that privacy is not warranted for city departments. But um, on a personal, on a kind of patient level, yeah, it's been, a, it's been a learning curve to learn how to cover um, situations without being able to name people specifically without their explicit dis um, permission. Anyone else want to weigh in on that? Yeah, they anonymize all the data. They, that's just nonsense, that excuse. In terms of data, getting data files on who they're testing and where they're testing, that data is you know, clean for their personal information right away. So I, I, that's not an issue. They have it all. And, and the thing is, you could see that they were giving bits and pieces of it to different groups. That's how we were getting it. That wasn't a, an excuse that made any sense. Scott, Trisha, either of you, before we go to audience questions, want to weigh in on the privacy question? Yeah, I, I feel like in the beginning of the pandemic, it was also, you could argue it was putting people in danger because they like wouldn't, they had neighborhood level data on where cases were, but they were hiding behind HIPAA and saying, we can't publish this because there's not that many cases. So if we tell you what neighborhood <laughs> we're going to, we're going to be violating people's privacy. And it's like, well, at this point, it's a, it's a safety thing, right? Like, don't you want to know, especially in, in the beginning, you know, when we didn't exactly know how this was being transmitted and how contagious it was, I feel like it would have at least maybe calmed people to have more transparency on where exactly the cases were and we could see you know which neighborhoods were being more impacted quicker yeah i mean unless i'm getting i'm asking for like the names of people and their test results i, I don't really see how there's any privacy violations there if you have they, they, it's obviously they're going to want to collect and track anonymized data and i don't remember anyone giving me a hipaa argument with that but i would object pretty forcefully if somebody tried that I wanna make sure that we get to some of the questions from people who are attending. The first one is from Bob P who says, seldom do I hear any reporter interrupt a long digression to say, you're off point and not addressing the question. Even when asked a simple yes, no question, we often hear blather. Are reporters afraid of not getting notified of future press events? I will say to that just briefly that in the press conferences that the city has had recently, we are not allowed to interrupt. We don't get a chance to do that. Um, but what do the rest of you say to that? Yeah, that's that's exactly the issue, right? Yeah. Where they, they can blather, they're behind a screen, so they can blather on as, as long as they want. Where if we were at a more traditional press conference, at the very least, we'd be able to yell a follow-up question or corner them afterwards. But Or say simply, you didn't answer the question. Yeah. Right. In, you know, verbally and someone would back you up. I mean, the reporters at those conferences are asking really good questions. They're just not being answered. 
Yeah, and there was one incident um, where questions had been submitted, and I think they were submitted according to guidelines, according to the rules, um, and the the conference was ended, which later um, the health department or the Department of Emergency Management sent out a notice apologizing and saying this was due to, I believe, procedural problems. Um, but yeah, I mean, at that point, people were starting to put in the chat, you're not answering our questions. <laughs> Um, Nular Scott, any thoughts on the question of interrupting people because you're, you know, you're worried about not getting further interviews with them? I mean, if you listen to my interviews and somebody's blathering on, I'm definitely going to say something about that. Uh, but usually my interviews aren't published. So, yeah, I mean, at a press conference, the format usually is they talk for a while and then you get a chance to answer questions. And then that's a lot more of a um, yelling back and forth and, and all that. Uh, but, you know, I, I wouldn't be afraid of interrupting them to get to not get invited to a future press event because I think that that's our right to be invited to future press events. So if they try to pull that, I think that that would be illegal actually. Uh, Jay asks, would anyone like to offer a few words on how responsive and forthcoming the mayor's office and or the supervisors are compared to San Francisco department heads? Oh, it varies just so widely. I, <laughs> I have some supervisors who send me story tips at 11 at night and pick up my phone calls on weekends. And I have others who, you know, I don't even have their cell phone number or it's, they never pick up. Um, I think there's a huge uh, range. I have personally not had an enormous amount of su success getting information out of the mayor's office. Um, but I think it really also varies with department heads as well. Um, some are very, very amenable to the press and part of that may be skills in public speaking or just the confidence in what they're saying. Um, and others really have to kind of talk behind the scenes before they can say anything to the media and that really slows things down. Yep. Yeah, I think it also depends again on how self-serving the information is, you know? <laughs> yes. <Yeah>. Inevitably. Builds <laughs> their agenda and when, you know, they can kind of beat down someone that they don't like. Um, but yeah, I mean, I've found it, you, you know, you, you kind of know the people who you can talk off the record with and who, who you'll get more information out from that way. And then you kind of have to like piece it together on the, on all the information like that. But yeah, I would agree with Nula. Like it varies so widely on who you can get information from. Actually, a follow-on to that from Johnny, uh, he asks, which city departments do you feel have done a good job of responding to data or information requests recently? And because we have Scott on the panel here as well, I'm gonna expand that to not just city departments, but other departments and agencies. Are there any that have been really responsive or that have, you can see they've you know put in a big effort to um, make sure that they actually get you the information that you're looking for? Um. I would say actually DPH has been very responsive to me. And I don't know if Trisha, you have the same experience covering overdoses and um, drug use and public health issues. I've always had really speedy responses from them about that more so perhaps than maybe um, vaccination information and things like that. Um, but yeah, I think it, it can depend a little bit on what you're asking. Yeah, I, I think the medical examiner's office should really be commended with how um, forthcoming they have been with information. They have um, a great person there. Uh, he's, one, he's like a chief, I forget his position, but he's pretty high up in, in the medical examiner's office. Um, a guy named Dr. Luke Rada, who, who he really like understands the need to put these overdose numbers out on a regular basis. And now 
they they're they're reporting these numbers more regularly because there was legislation that was forcing them to but you know talking to dr rada he's like we 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 he's he's putting it out more than the legislation um mandates him to so he does it every month where i think the legislation would tell them to do it every like three or four months or something like that but because he understands sort of like the public need and the public benefit that we would get from like reporting these numbers with such urgency um i think it has it's informed our coverage a lot it's informed you know the public's understanding of what's going on with overdoses and you know you could also argue that it's also um brought more urgency to the city's response to this as well. Feels weird to praise a city department. <laughs> I'm sure if there are any city department workers uh, in the audience, that <laughs> they're also having feelings about that. <laughs> to give credit where credit is due. So. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, any, any, uh, any commendations from Lydia or Scott? <laughs> Mm, not really. I mean I, think, <laughs> I mean, I think DPH has gotten slightly, very slightly better. I think there, um, I think there are some people who work at DPH who are very helpful and very forthcoming. But I would say the the leadership there, not so much, um, which is a shame. And I think, I don't know, I think that, I don't know, maybe it's shifting a bit. Find that sometimes uh, how responsive and open they are depends on what I'm asking for. And some cities mm -hmm. are like, here, you can have this. And then I ask for another thing. And then it's like a whole bunch of obstacles that they lay out. Mm -hmm. But uh, in particular, I have had good experiences in the last year with the um, State Court of Appeals in San Francisco. The clerks over there sent me back documents, I think, same day that I'd asked for. Um, and I'll also say that the water board in the Bay Area um, has a very good public records liaison that was super helpful. You're listening to highlights from a roundtable of Bay Area journalists about reduced government transparency during the coronavirus pandemic. I do also want to ask um, an earlier question, which I hadn't gotten to. Lauren wanted to know what residents can do to advocate for more transparency from government agencies. Is there something that the average person can do to help? Um, something mm. that you want readers of your right of, of your writing or listeners to your audio or whatever it is to um to prod their public officials is there a way for the public to do that even it's interesting i mean you know talking to your supervisor emailing your supervisor emailing the departments that you also want i mean there are a couple of people on that we're having email exchanges that seem to be constantly doing that and you know doing it in a way that is also not nutty but just being incessant you know and i think that's helpful for them to know that this information and not you know just needs to be out yeah in that way but i don't know the others do you guys have I've had, I've had times when I've written an article um, that highlighted a lack of information or a lack of response from someone in the city and when it gets an enormous amount of shares, you know, when people are really sharing it and calling that out, sometimes then I get a call from that person the next day being like, hey, sorry, I, I missed your deadline. <laughs> um, so sometimes people just kind of pointing out the issue and sharing the issue can give it a little bit more weight um, and kind of pressure people to respond. Yeah, I mean, my, my sense of the situation is also that it, it helps when people are clearly paying attention and when, you know, 
they're reading the material or they're listening to us and and they're also um asking their elected officials to make sure that they're responsive to journalists, sort of generally supporting journalism. I'm sure that all of us are would be happy to plug, you know, just the various institutions that we work for and supporting them financially. Um, paying for your news, I think, helps us pay reporters to put in the time that it takes to do this kind of thing, um, because it does take time and it does take persistence to follow up on records requests and to ask these questions and to just spend spend the time and working on this. I mean, Lydia, I, I think you can speak to this, but having had multiple reporters out in the field the entire pandemic, right? You've spent an enormous amount of time on getting information. Lots and lots of time. <laughs> uh, you know, I have a feeling around the vaccination issue that you're gonna see a lot of people calling the mayor's office, asking for more information and wanting more information. And there's gonna be a lot of pressure on DPH to put out more information about vaccinations. A lot of people are very anxious, you know, rightfully so about it and when they're gonna get it and how they're gonna get it. And um, I think, so I think that, that that's gonna be interesting to watch actually because there's not much information. Yeah. Yeah, and I think you're already kind of seeing that um, based on a story that will be posted on sanfranciscochronicle.com soon um, mm -hmm. about how, you know, super bad, like your, your local lawmakers, yeah. like the board of supervisors are getting so much pressure from their constituents. Like they're the ones who are getting inundated and then they're the ones who are like, you're starting to hear them yell about it. I mean, I'm sure a lot of you might've seen supervisor Matt Haney's Twitter rant yesterday about it. And now you have the supervisors are starting to, they're calling for a hearing. And then um, one supervisor called for a resolution calling for more, um, for more data. And it just, you know, you kind of see this like spiraling effect where Hopefully it will eventually lead to uh, DPH like um, and the state health department like creating more transparency. And that's really, you know, that's a really a bottom up thing. It starts from being all the, having all this frustration and then it, you know, trickles back up to the people who actually have power to disseminate this information. Yeah. Yeah, and I, I also wanted to mention, um, Lila let me know that one recommendation that we might have for people who are interested in um, in helping get information out to the public is you don't have to be a journalist necessarily to file a public records request. You can do that of your own accord. And I think we've seen stories come out in, in the press that follow from somebody who's not necessarily a journalist, just filing public records requests for things that they're interested in, you can do that. Um, and then you can try and, you know, share that information however you will, since it is public information or collaborate with a reporter if you want to get the word out um, that way. I, I am curious if any of you have used the Sunshine Ordinance or come before the Sunshine Ordinance Task Force. Um, somebody did want to know um, if there are comments about the task force, which um, this commenter says the, the mayor has pretty much sidelined for many months. There, um, the, the, you know, the Sunshine Ordinance is still in effect, but there have been quick response requirements that were suspended because of the health order. Um, and also we have a Sunshine Ordinance Task Force member with us today who says, you know, we, we'd love to see you there. And I wanna give all of our panelists a chance to talk, like just to give your closing thoughts about um, this time and how, how the pandemic and the health orders have affected your ability to get the information that you need um, and, and the uh, access to the public officials and the interviews and the information that you think the public needs to know. I mean, I would say to the reporters out there who are asking questions and how this happens, I think, you know, multiple sourcing and, and being just tireless. I mean, 
feel like a junkyard dog on this testing story. <laughs> just don't let go. Uh, and to people out there supporting local media, I mean, everyone on this panel is working for a place, subscribe. Um, it's incredibly important. It costs money. It takes professional journalists to do this. Uh, so that's, those are two things. And in terms of transparency, it never hurts to um, email or call your supervisor or the mayor's office and complain about a lack of transparency or, or a lack, you can watch these press conferences yourself. Um, and people should, and I think it would make you angry. Yeah, actually, I'll, I'll add to that as the rest of you give your, your final thoughts here. Um, if there's information that you have been seeking or that you think um, the public should know about and you haven't been able to get it, I think that would be really relevant for people to hear about it. Is there something that we don't know because access has been cut off to that information? Yeah, we still don't know how much the shelter-in-place hotels cost. Um, at this point, I'm going to have to file a sunshine request maybe I should reveal that maybe I shouldn't but if I keep if I keep going on that story that's I think that's the only way I'm going to get that information um and that's just going to slow everything down right the decisions are being made and people are not being aware of them because transparency is not present um I think the one other thing that I would add is um to everyone listening and tuning in you are also our eyes and ears and um tips really really matter during this time I think I can speak for every reporter that we are incredibly overloaded with different things going on right now, you know, nationally and locally. Um, but it's really, really helpful to have people email us and say, hey, you know, even I don't know if this is a story, but I saw this or I heard this or I'm experiencing this. Um, that really can, can inform the direction in which we take our work. Um, and it's invaluable as a reporter to receive tips from the community. Yeah, um, adding to that, I think this pandemic has really uh, showed the importance of local news um, because you know, the pandemic is such a local issue, right? And even going back to what I was saying before about getting neighborhood level data, I mean, a, a big paper like the New York Times or the Washington Post isn't going to be, um, you know, pushing for the amount of case counts or the testing sites like in the mission, like Lydia at Mission Local would be doing. Um, so this really shows the importance of of supporting your local publications who can, who are actually doing this work, who are, um, you know, questioning the officials that have the most impact on your life as well. So subscribe to all of us. <laughs> Scott, any last thoughts from you? You asked a question about whether or not there's anything that we don't know. And I'll tell you that one thing that uh, I was trying to get my hands on early on in the pandemic was that uh, police departments were supposed to be changing their arrest and, and booking patterns based on the, um, to, to try and kind of keep the jail population down. And I had a lot of trouble from a few different agencies getting, getting that arrest data. And one of them, Oakland Police Department, never gave it to me. And that's actually the subject of a lawsuit now. So there are things that just we can't find out about. Great. Well, we are at the end of our time together. Um, so I just want to thank the entire panel, Nula, Trisha, Lydia, Scott. Thanks so much for spending this time with us and for talking about this. Those were some highlights from our recent live reporter roundtable, where journalists shared some of the obstacles they've faced to accessing public information during the pandemic. I'm Laura Wenis, and you've been listening to Civic. Civic is underwritten in part by the San Francisco Foundation, which has been acting as a catalyst for change to build strong communities, foster civic leadership, and promote philanthropy in the San Francisco Bay Area since 1948. More at sff dot o r g